Matthew chapter 16 is where we're headed this morning. It's the text that we just heard together. And I really can't tell you how good it is to be back with you all. And to those of you watching online, we know that this continues to be such an odd time that we live in, and we are anxious to see you all soon as well. 2020 has been a year, and it feels like at every turn something else is happening. Um, The loss this week of Chadwick Boseman, on top of everything else, just feels like the most unkind cut, right? Like this thing that we didn't know was happening, didn't know to expect, and suddenly this really bright spot in our world is no longer with us. And I think that a lot of us would like to say to 2020 what we find Jesus saying to Peter in this text today, which is, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Let's look at the text today. Typically, this story of Matthew 16, it gets broken up into two kind of stories. But there is some brilliance in looking at this as a whole, at looking at this whole chapter as one continuous narrative, and I'll show you what I mean here in just a moment. In the text, Jesus is traveling alongside his disciples, and he asks them, who do people say that I am? This is earlier in Matthew chapter 16. And they respond to him. They say, some say that you are John the Baptist, others say Elijah, And others still say that you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks them this question, but who do you say that I am? And listen to this. Peter opens his mouth and says something that no one else has said before. Peter, for most of us, has become this sort of mascot or a caricature of our humanity, right? He is this hard-headed, fiery person who shows to us all of our fiery, messy, hard-headed moments that we experience. And he has this reputation of not getting it right so often. But here in this moment, when Jesus looks at him and says, who do you say that I am? Peter gets it right when no one else gets it right. He sees clearly when no one else sees clearly, and he answers Jesus, you are the Messiah, the anointed one. Peter, in this strange moment, grasped what so many others who followed Jesus failed to grasp. These people who considered themselves his disciples completely missed this point, and Jesus understands it. And he says to to Peter, rather, that he's blessed. He calls Peter the rock on which he will build his church. So Jesus sternly orders the other disciples not to tell anyone about him. And this is such a beautiful, almost almost vindicating moment for Peter, right? Like gold star for Peter. You get it right. You did the thing. Like good job, Peter. And then verse 21 says, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And then on the third day be raised. And then Peter, right on the heels of getting it right, right after he rightly understood who Jesus is, takes him aside (laughs) and begins to rebuke him 
which is not a great idea when you're talking to Jesus. But isn't this what most of us do? That in one moment, we can't do anything right. We're always getting it wrong. We're so hard on ourselves. We're good for nothing. But then we get one thing right, and suddenly we think we get everything right. We are prophets. We are feeling so good about ourselves. And then Peter, the one who just said the really wise, the really spiritual, the really insightful thing, is now pulling Jesus aside, rebuking Jesus, the one he's just called the Messiah, telling Jesus that he's got it wrong. God forbid it, Lord, he says to him. This must never happen to you. And Jesus turns and looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) So how is this possible? How is it possible to go from one moment of divinely insightful, illumined wisdom, and in the very next moment start rebuking Jesus? How does this even happen? Uh, On one hand, it's really easy to see how this happens, right? That our egos get puffed up and we have to quickly be taken back down. But beyond that, it's fascinating that Jesus's language here is get behind me, Satan. Like, maybe we could all agree that this is a little strong, Jesus. Like, he's not looking at him and saying, get behind me, you knucklehead, you jerk. No, he says, get behind me, Satan. So what exactly is happening here? What are we talking about? I don't think, and I've never seen it argued, that Satan had physically entered Peter. Like this is some kind of exorcism. I don't think that's what we're witnessing in the text. He wasn't physically taken over, and yet the language here is still addressing Satan. So on one level, Peter is as well-intentioned as he may be. He is saying something deeply, deeply disruptive and distracting to the way of the kingdom. So often, wonderful, well-intentioned people are prone to miss some of the big picture kingdom ideas because the way of the kingdom, the way of the cross, it always involves suffering. In some way, Peter doesn't want this to be true for Jesus, Because that means it's inevitably going to be true for him. That if you have to go and experience suffering and death, I'm following you. And that means that at some point, I'm going to experience suffering and death. So let's not let this be true for you, Jesus. But the reality is the only way to the kingdom is through the cross, is through the way of suffering. And so Jesus offers Peter this really stern rebuke. Again, right on the heels of Peter getting it right. Let's not forget that. We in the business call this high highs and low lows. (laughs) To go from getting it right to getting it so wrong, and yet this is so much of our human experience, that I'm so good, I'm so smart, I'm so pretty, to Jesus just called me Satan, didn't he? So let's talk about something that we don't often talk about, but if there was ever a time to really dive in and talk about Satan, isn't it the year of our Lord 2020? 
When, when we think about Satan, I think it's important for me to start by saying I do believe there is some force of evil in the world whose whole is greater than the sum of its parts. But I, I don't think that Satan exists in the same way that God exists. Satan doesn't exist in the way that you and I exist even. Throughout the church's history, figures like Thomas Aquinas claim that evil can only exist as a kind of parasite to the good. There's something shadowy and mysterious about this devil, about Satan, because there's a way that he sort of clings on and makes things less than what they could be or ought to be. But again, Satan isn't a being in the same way that you and I are beings in the world. When we look at the scriptures, it actually takes some time for Satan to get explicitly mentioned. In Genesis, we read about the serpent, but it's not explicitly mentioned that the serpent is Satan. So the first appearance of Satan proper actually doesn't happen until the book of Job. In clear, unambiguous terms, we see Satan as the one who is going in and out of the presence of God, accusing the people of God, accusing Job. So throughout scripture, it's worth mentioning that Satan is not a name. It's not a surname like Paul or Shelby. It's a title. It is an office that he holds. And Satan literally means the accuser. So it's, again, it's more of a role. And the role that Satan plays is to accuse and to make accusation. So whatever this force of evil is, whatever it looks like or how it manifests at the core of its being is accusation. This can be odd for us as Christians to hear because so often we're taught that Satan is just like the ultimate bad guy and his job as the ultimate bad guy is to go make more bad guys who do bad things, right? But at the heart of the reality of who Satan is, is blame and finger pointing and accusation and scapegoating. That's just the job of the devil. In the same way that the New Testament says that God is love, not that God is loving, that would be an attribute of God. But at the core, at the center of God's being, God is love itself. And in the same way that God is love, Satan is accusation. Accusation is not just a trait or a characteristic or an action of Satan. It is at the core of who Satan is. Satan is the one who accuses, who blames, who finger points, scapegoats. This is what we get about Satan in the scriptures. So as this shadowy figure goes around and tries to thwart the plans of God with the only tool in his tool belt, accusation, he doesn't have a manifest being, a form in which he presents himself, but he's only manifest when attached to a person by the way of accusation. Dr. Green said last week that if you want to know what God is doing in the world, how is the kingdom moving forward? Look at what you are doing because you are the people of God. And in the same way, if you want to know what Satan is up to in the world, 
Look for the accusers. Look for the ones who are caught up in blaming and finger pointing. This is how this kind of evil gets manifest in the world. And so this is why Jesus turns to Peter and says to him, get behind me, Satan. Because in this text, what is happening is Peter is attempting to, unintentionally, I believe, circumvent the way of the kingdom and the way of the cross, unintentionally distracting from the central mission of Jesus by accusing Jesus of getting it all wrong and rebuking him. So if you want to know where Satan is, what Satan is up to, listen for accusation. I think this is a word for us today. We all know that 2020 is a strange time, and especially given that it's an election year. But if we are going to be people who represent Christ well in the world, we have to be people who reject and refuse to participate in accusation. A quick sidebar for most Protestants, for most of us, the most important question, the question that wins the day is, are you saved? Have you been saved? Have you accepted Jesus into your life? Have you been born again? This is at the center of our faith. Most important question we ask. For others, some of our other brothers and sisters in the Christian faith, the question is not, are you saved? It's, are you being saved? Are you consistently and constantly opening yourself up to God's work in your life. And then to others still, particularly in the Eastern Church, the question is not, are you saved? And the question is not, are you being saved? The question is, are you living in a way that makes Christ's resurrection believable to others? Are you living in a way that makes the resurrection a reality in the world? A whole different set of questions here. But in order to live in that kind of way, we have to be people who reject accusation, who refuse to blame and to point fingers and to scapegoat others, all for the sake of being right. Because feeling right is such an addictive drug. That feeling of being right is so good, but it's also so fleeting, and we chase it. This means we have to commit to learning how to speak to one another. And Facebook makes this so hard. My motto for 2020 has been, don't read the comments. <laughs> But it's true, right? Because we've become so divided and so polarized and, dare we say, so possessed by the devil that we can't hardly speak to one another in any way that isn't riddled with blame and accusation. Like Peter, we're so convinced that we are right and they are wrong. And in Peter's case, even when they happens to be Jesus, <laughs> Remember, going all the way back to the garden, the root of all human sin is pride. The idea is not that Adam and Eve partake in the tree of evil. They partake in the tree of the knowledge 
of good and evil, playing judge and having a sense of rightness and righteousness that doesn't require God at all. Instead of living in humility and dependence on God, they step into a kind of knowledge that's too much for us, taking God's job. I want us to hear that God is infinitely merciful infinitely forgiving, that it is always within God to forgive. The problem is that the hardest thing to get through isn't the hot sins that we typically think of, but the hardest thing to deal with really is judgment and blame and accusation because the only time and place where we're not in a posture to receive God's grace is while we're too busy playing God. You can't need God while you're playing God. And while I'm too busy blaming someone else and accusing someone else and pointing the finger at someone else, directing my, my angst and my anxiety and fear onto that other person, I'm incapable of living in a way that is humble and open and receptive to God's grace. This is why in the New Testament, Jesus is so much harder on the scribes and the Pharisees than he is anyone else. This is why he often reserves the harshest language for the, the, the devilish language when talking with them because accusation is at the heart of all devilish religion. Jesus reserves this rhetoric only for those who are so convinced by some religious system that they know who is in and who is out, who is up and who is down, who is right and who is wrong. In that sense, they are the ones who are partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The danger in all of this is that while I'm busy playing God, while I'm so caught up in the accusation game, I get so fixed on the faults and the imperfections of others that I'm blind to my own sin. I can't see myself rightly so long as I'm walking in any form of blame and accusation everything gets wildly out of proportion. It's like if you've ever looked at yourself in one of those carnival mirrors, this is us trying to rightly see ourselves in the midst of accusation. Right now, in our country especially, it feels like we've never been angrier. <laughs> Everybody's angry. Everyone is polarized. Everyone is yelling. And it's interesting just how quickly that vein gets tapped into. And again, especially as we move toward electing another Caesar. That's what we should remember, that we do not elect our saviors, we elect our Caesars. Of course, politics is an easy target, right? I mean, it's, it's always there, it's always in front of us, but this does apply to every area of our lives, we're always tempted to fall into a rut of accusation. And so when we participate in accusation and in finger pointing, you come to find out that there's something inside of you that's just not at rest. Do you know what I mean? That there's just something in you that goes, ah, this isn't right. Why am I anxious all the time? Why am I angry all the time? And doesn't it just beg the question, is it ever the fruit of the Spirit that does that to us? 
Is it ever the fruit of the Spirit that makes us anxious and angry and accusatory? Is it ever God that ties us up in knots? Because it's not. That's not God's work. That's the devil's work. Kids in the room, are we having fun this morning? (laughs) So how do we cure this? How do we start to reorient ourselves How do we start to, again, be the people who live in a way that makes the resurrected Christ believable? Well, at risk of sounding cliche, it's love. It sounds silly. It sounds almost stupid simple. But it's love. When we fall into cycles of accusation and blame and finger-pointing, we start to see one another as enemies. But as Christians, we remember that we have no enemies, only people who think they are our enemies. We have brothers and sisters. When we see each other as enemies, our only hope for the other person is that they are destroyed. That's the outcome we hope for all of our enemies. But when we see one another as brothers and sisters, our hope shifts so that we no longer wish to see one another destroyed. We want to see one another healed. Bishop Nikolai Velomirovich, he's not from here. He's a bishop in the Serbian Orthodox Church, has a great beard, and he once said, one hates his enemies only when he fails to realize that They're not his enemies, but cruel friends. Which is to say that our friends may be cruel, but they're not our enemies. We may engage people in our lives who are cruel, but we still shouldn't seek to wish them to be destroyed. They're our friends, cruel friends, but we ought to want to see them healed. In our Old Testament text today, we have this story of Moses and the burning bush. And Moses can be a kind of confusing character because he's this person who's kind of trapped in between two worlds, right? He's a member of the Hebrew people, but he's also been raised alongside the power and the privilege of the Egyptian empire. And so Moses' experience with God, it shifts all of his identity that he's now called out to be a liberator. But liberation happens in lots of different ways. Moses was called to liberate the oppressed from this harsh burden of inferiority. But he's also called to liberate the oppressors from this destructive illusion of superiority, this thinking that I am better than you. And this is what we should strive for, to be people who are hard to pin down in any group or any tribe or any party, who instead wish to see the world healed and set free. So how do we embrace a life of love? And how does love heal accusation? We're starting to land this plane, I promise. Alan Badiou a French philosopher, he argues that the kind of love that heals 
is the kind that refuses to see the world only through my eyes. He says, love is a quest for truth. What kind of world does one see when one experiences it from the point of view of two and not one? What is the world like when experienced, developed, and lived from the point of view of difference and not just identity? The point that he's making is that we ought to love one another with the kind of love that witnesses to the fact that our well-being is all tied up in the well-being of other people. That my freedom is all bound up in yours. That my healing depends on your healing. To never forget that our common life together depends on one another's toil. One of my most recent fascinations is with astrophotography. Anyone else? Um, and it's not too hard to guess what astrophotography is, right? It's pictures of stars and planets and nebula dust. But I came across this photo this past week. It's a photo by a guy named Andrew McCarthy. Um, you should see it here in a moment. It's a brilliant picture of the moon, of our moon, this thing that we look at all the time. And I wish our projectors would do this picture justice because it's an unbelievably beautiful picture. In the right lighting and in the right screen, you can actually see both sides of the moon, the light and the dark, all at the same time. And it's one of the highest resolution photographs of the moon that we've ever gotten. And when you look at it, if you have a hard time seeing that this is one photo, a hard time believing this is just a photograph and not some kind of digital mock-up or graphic image, um, in one way you're right. Because it isn't one photo. It's actually a collection of over 24,000 photographs of the moon that were blended and brought together to give us this image. This is what Badu means when he says that we must live in a way that experiences life from the point of view of us and not just me. In that picture, we saw both the light side of the moon and the dark side of the moon. And while we would rather be people who argue that things are only light or only dark on this moon, accusing the other side of telling lies, we can instead set out for a quest for truth that requires us and not just me. Friends, if the work of Satan is all bound up in blaming and accusation, then I really believe it comes down to something as simple as this, that the work of God and the work that we are called to as the people of God is the work of advocacy. If the work of devil is accusation, the world is healed by advocating for one another. Where Satan is described as the accuser, Jesus is the one who pleads our case, who pleads on our behalf. And Jesus doesn't just take a stand for the innocent. Jesus stands for the guilty. Aren't you glad for that? <laughs> that Jesus stands up and pleads the case of those even found guilty. And any time that we find ourselves in conflict, any time 
we're experiencing this pull between these opposing forces of an opportunity to accuse or an opportunity to advocate, what I do with that question, with that opportunity, is going to determine whether I'm furthering God's work in the world or the devil's work. If that sounds too simple, trust me, it's not. There is always a chance to be the advocate rather than the accuser, to be the person who brings words of life and light and hope into the discourse. This doesn't mean that there isn't room for justice. Accountability and accusation are two very different things. But for us, accusation is usually about us feeling right. And in those times, there's an opportunity to side with the advocate instead of the accuser. And that's where God is working. I don't know about you, but I tend to turn on the news for five minutes and feel like I need a bath. We've lost all sense of how to speak to one another in ways that are gracious and compassionate. So let's be different. Let's be people who resist accusation and instead step into advocacy, who refuse to just see the world by our own perspective and to see it through our perspective, to realize that it takes us. Listen to these words as we close from James 3. For where there is evil, envy, and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who are peacemakers. Ah, doesn't that just feel like sanity (laughs) washing over you? That the way of the kingdom comes in ways that are peaceful and gentle speech. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. So whatever side you find yourself on, whatever culture war you may be trapped in, hear these words. God did not call you to be right. God called you to be a peacemaker. A gentle voice that changes the atmosphere that advocates rather than accuses. And only a life that is guided by the Spirit and in prayer can make that possible. Amen.